0: Hey, this is Heated, a podcast where we're showing how the COVID and climate crisis stories are actually the same story. I'm Emily Atkin. This podcast grew out of the Heated newsletter I created on Substack. It's easy to find at heated.world, or you can type Heated newsletter into Google. If you're finding us here on our second episode, make sure you also check out episode one, where the legendary Bill McKibben laid out some solid gold truths about activism and solidarity in a time of crisis. Today, we're talking with The New Republic's Kate Aronoff. Kate's been writing brilliantly about creative policy solutions to the pandemic for a long time now, weeks even before COVID-19 took over the national discussion. These solutions would not only help revitalize the economy, they would help it become resilient against the next global crisis, climate change. And yet, when Kate and I chatted, no one in power seemed to be talking about forward-looking solutions like these. We spoke on Monday and things have changed a little bit since our discussion, but not by much. The basic elements are the same. Our political leaders have utterly failed to imagine what a better world could look like after this pandemic. What has happened is that fossil fuel interests are currently capitalizing on that failure. And this is gonna have disastrous consequences for all of us, but you can make a difference. I'll tell you how in a second. First, I have to point out that heated is a 100% independent project. We're not part of a larger news organization and we get no corporate or foundation support. You can help make this happen. We're making these shows so that all of us can use this moment in time, even when we're struggling, to learn and connect and find ways to act so we don't keep repeating the mistakes that got us here. Your participation matters. And stay tuned at the end to find out how you can make a difference. In last week's episode, I asked Bill McKibben why it might be necessary to put climate change policy in a relief bill for coronavirus. His answer, and I'm quoting directly here, was that if you're going to be spending trillions of dollars, you don't want to just set up the pins in the bowling alley again. In other words, we only get so many opportunities to spend this much money. So if we could spend it in a way that not only saved millions of lives from a virus— but also saved millions of lives from climate change, why wouldn't we do that? Republicans don't see it this way. For the last two weeks, they've been claiming that anyone who introduces climate policy into a COVID relief conversation is taking advantage of a tragedy. Trump called it ridiculous and nonsense to address climate change in a COVID relief package. Benny Johnson from Turning Point USA literally said Democrats were bastards for using a national crisis to push for Green New Deal goodies. Former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders accused Democrats of, quote, leveraging Americans suffering during this crisis to win concessions on their Green New Deal, quote. The list goes on and on and on. But let me tell you a few other things that have happened in the last two weeks. As thousands of Americans have been suffering and dying from COVID-19, The EPA stopped enforcement of environmental health regulations. The country's Pipeline Safety Regulatory Agency relaxed compliance enforcement too. The Trump administration rolled back public health regulations to reduce pollution from cars. And three states signed laws restricting the ability of climate activists to protest fossil fuel projects. Hmm. That's not even everything. In the last two weeks alone, The plastics industry, which is part of the fossil fuel industry, successfully lobbied several states to bring back single-use plastic bags. The coal industry is in this, too. The National Mining Association asked the White House to let it stop paying into the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, which helps sick miners. And today, to top it all off, several oil and gas company executives are meeting at the White House because they want the next coronavirus relief package to include bailout provisions. So please, spare me the performative outrage about leveraging American suffering during this crisis to win concessions. If anyone is doing that right now, it's not Democrats. You know, the whole thing makes me think of this song by the rapper Q-Tip, where he says, the things that you would accuse me of, it seems were the things you were doing, love. And this is the pathology of the fossil fuel industry. And it's why they're winning the fight against climate change right now because they're not afraid to take what they're doing and project it onto their opponents. Democrats, meanwhile, have been suckered into silence. Too scared to be accused of taking advantage of a crisis, they allowed a $2 trillion spending package to be passed with no climate provisions whatsoever, and they stepped back and called it a victory. Pathetic. Apparently, the next spending package is going to be different. This week, Democratic leaders in Congress said they would push for several green infrastructure provisions, including a substantial investment in high-speed rail in the next COVID relief bill. Joe Biden has also said he'd like to see the next relief package include elements of his, quote, Green Deal, as he calls it. We'll see what happens. Between you and me, though, this seems like a really good time to have a serious heart-to-heart with your congressional representatives. If you're passionate about a healthy, livable future, Now is the time to make your voice heard. In the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Kate. What's up, Kate? Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You usually work from home. You're usually writing about a global crisis that affects millions of people every day. So this must feel relatively normal to you. Yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I,
1: I guess, you know, I have a leg up of the pandemic feeling a little bit more normal for me, but still very much figuring out what this new world looks like but yeah I mean there's something about writing about climate where the just emotional pace of it is such that you are in this mindset you just have to be in and and I, I don't think it's quite like desensitization I don't feel desensitized necessarily but there is like a you can compartmentalize a little bit.
0: Compartmentalization is something I hear from a lot of climate writers and reporters. The ability to sort of know what you know but live your life normally in spite of what you know. And I feel like that's good and bad. There's
1: a lot of things we don't think about and it's not bad, right? Like I don't wake up, I mean, maybe more so now, but I don't regularly wake up thinking about my own mortality. That's coming, you know, we're all gonna die. But I don't wake up thinking about death, even though, you know, that is just the reality of being a human being in this world.
0: You still have the the moral clarity about knowing that the climate crisis is going to cause death, right? Which is why you so often write about how politicians have a responsibility to prevent death when they're creating economic policy with climate change in mind, right? You don't have to experience the grief to know the the moral imperative.
1: Yeah. And I think the way that I've thought about it is that I I think it shapes everything I think about, you know, (laughs) like the climate crisis is just kind of the terrain on which politics is done. It's the setting in which we're operating. It's not this sort of discrete crisis. It's kind of what you know we're living in. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: No, it does. And I feel a connection between that and the coronavirus just when it comes to watching politicians who I know understand the severity of the climate crisis compartmentalize the coronavirus crisis and the climate crisis in the economic relief package we just saw passed most recently, the third economic relief package, that was a $2 trillion package. And it's passed by these same you know serious grownups who say that the Green New Deal, which is also projected to cost at least a couple trillion, is something that is too high. It's, a, it's an absurdly high thing to pay for. There's no way that we would do that. It's a pie in the sky idea to pass the Green New Deal. What have you been seeing with it?
1: This is a $2 trillion package to deal with this urgent pressing crisis, which is a figure that has been off the table just for both sides of the political spectrum for as long as, you know, certainly my lifetime, right? In the aftermath of the last recession, there was this memo circulated by Obama's chief economic advisor, Larry Summers, where he advised Obama then sort of coming into office against the T word, he called it, against spending a trillion dollars because that would be too controversial. Republicans wouldn't like it. Conservative Democrats wouldn't like it. Just stay away, even though that was the sort of bare minimum that outside advisors, even that people sort of in Obama's inner circle, recommended. Here we are a decade later, and Republicans just spent $2 trillion on what will be, you know, the first in probably a number of maybe even more expensive bills. And you have, you know, people like Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin saying this is not the time to worry about the deficit, that there's an urgent crisis at hand. And so I think what we're seeing is just politicians owning up to the fact that they've been lying to us, right? (laughs) They've been lying to us about the amount of money that we can spend, about, you know, what's important, about what hard limits really do exist on policy. And Everyone should you know be screaming about it, I think, because you know we 've just been lied to right we 've been lied to about what 's possible and what 's not, and I think i 'm sure you know especially if a Democrat is in office come you know january two thousand twenty one we will probably see correction back right you 'll see Republicans in Congress saying we have this debt that we need to spend down, we can 't possibly you know think about spending money on a climate program we can 't possibly think about. Um, maybe even extending some of the policies that we put in place to deal with the coronavirus crisis, this is like a pattern that is not unusual, right? Every time every time there's a crisis, right? The thing to deal with is a crisis at hand. This is not the time to talk about anything else. This is not the time to bring in outside issues, you know, no matter how important they might be, namely climate change, right? And we see this even with climate-related disasters. After a hurricane, it's not the time to talk about the climate crisis. After wildfires, you know, we just have to make sure people are whole. We just have to make sure people's homes get rebuilt. And so there's never really a good time to talk about it.
0: Why is this the time then? Because I think that that's knowledge that people are really going to need to be armed with when they're going out and talking to say their families about why they want to see elements of a Green New Deal or elements of climate policy in an economic relief bill, because there is going to be another one probably. How do you explain to people that now is the time to see climate policy in an economic relief bill?
1: We just don't have a society which is resilient, right? We don't have a society which can respond to big threats in the way that I think a lot of people sort of hoped we could. And why is that? Because the right wing has spent the last 40 or 50 years dismantling the idea that the public sector was worth investing in and sort of spreading this myth that if there was a real problem, the private sector would take care of it. And that is just a bad set of tools to deal with anything we might see coming down the pipeline. And what is the sort of most pressing crisis of the 21st century? It's the climate crisis, right? And, you know, I I think it's probably not worth overstating the case about the connection between infectious disease and climate change. We know, you know, the microbiologist I spoke to said we can't know for certain whether climate change caused the coronavirus. We can know that rising temperatures will make things like this more possible because habitats are being destroyed and more animals are coming into contact with another, what more species are, you know, intermingling because their habitats are being destroyed. And so we'll see more of these spillover events, which is what helped create the, the coronavirus. And you know, I'm not a microbiologist. I'm not a health reporter. Somebody else can speak to that. But we know that we will be dealing, if not With more zoonotic illnesses, those are known, we will certainly be dealing with more quote-unquote natural disasters, with more ecological crises. And do we want a society which is equipped to handle that, right? We've seen that we don't have one. Do we want to prevent as many of these crises as we can prevent now? And we can use this as an opportunity to do that, right? We only get so many chances to spend massive amounts of money, unfortunately, um, from the public sector. And these are political choices, and they're political choices either way. And so we can either push those choices in a direction that makes society more resilient, that prevents future crises, or we can double down on what we were doing before, which, you know, has gotten us to where we are.
0: It's not just Republicans either, right? I mean, I know that you were pretty tough on Democrats for how they negotiated the last relief package. Can you give us a walkthrough of the core of your points and why you think that Democrats haven't been living up to their responsibilities, especially with regard to the climate?
1: Yeah, I'm not going to pretend this is sort of an ideal negotiating place for Democrats to be in, but climate was basically non-existent in this package, right? We had the closest we got to having climate sort of represented in the third stimulus was a provision about bailing out the airline sector, which said they would have had to bring down emissions by some sort of minimal amount and encourage them to invest in research while getting rid of um, stock by And that, you know, didn't even make it in, right? Even that sort of like minimal provision didn't make it in. And it's less serious on climate even than the last stimulus, which is much smaller, but spent, you know, 10% of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was put into loan guarantees, put into a sort of range of programs, which did a lot to encourage solar and wind development, did a lot to sort of push renewables along, could have been much, much bigger. But there was a focus, right, toward, you know, investing in the kind of economy we need that's just non-existent in this bill. And we didn't even really see big ideas being put out. And, and even some of the big ideas that made it into the stimulus were shot down by Democratic leadership. There are so many big ideas coming out of the Democratic field, as we've seen from the primary, right? We've had, you know, this whole sort of swath of really great sort of thinking and policy thinking, influenced by social movements, you know, coming out of places like the Sunrise Movement, really trying to bring big ideas to the table and big ideas that are really popular. A federal job guarantee is popular across swing states. There was some pulling out recently from Data for Progress, which found that investment in green technology was, is widely popular across the board. So there are big ideas. We know they're popular. We know people like them. And the Democratic leadership seems at least to this point, not to be interested in fighting for them.
0: I remember just a few months ago when we had a debate stage filled with candidates who had all these different, very aggressive climate plans, different ways of approaching the climate crisis with all these different ways to do it. I mean, you even wrote about some of them when you're talking about how We should be approaching coronavirus, right, a a green stimulus, something that we could invest in green manufacturing jobs for people who are losing their jobs right now. We could nationalize the fossil fuel industry, which you called a moderate proposal, which I know some people would disagree with and I'd love to get you to talk about that too. But these were ideas that were at least broadly popular within democratic politics, and now it just seems that those ideas are gone, at least when it comes to coronavirus. I know that part of that is just because people are freaking out about this particular crisis and we have an inability to think of two things at once. But I just feel like all the momentum around climate policy from Democrats as we've lost the field of candidates is gone.
1: Yeah, I mean, one... particularly depressing figure is that the third stimulus is bigger than Joe Biden's entire climate plan, which is $1.9 trillion. (laughs) Yeah. So we, you know, there's a real ambition gap. And I think after, after the green new deal came out of the gate in late 2018, You saw over the course of that next year, both presidential candidates, but also the Democratic Party more generally, sort of trying to talk more about climate change and their commitment to the issue. Tom Perez promised over and over again that climate would come up regularly in the Democratic debate, which it didn't as he failed to create a climate debate. And so there was this move on the part of the Democratic Party to try and soothe folks in the Sunrise Movement, climate strikers everyone who was kind of raising concern that this just had not been a priority for the party for some time. And they said, no, just wait, just wait. We'll get to it. It's fine. And I think what we've seen in this crisis is that this really is not a priority for senior leadership in the Democratic Party. And I don't want to like overgeneralize, right? I think there are people who have been very insistent that we need climate to be sort of in this picture. We've seen support for things like the people's bailout from a number of representatives, which takes investment in you know, a low-carbon economy as one of its central planks.
0: I mean, is it a crisis of imagination? Is it just that we don't have leaders who see how solving two things at once actually improves our outcome on both
1: Negotiating back to like neutral to bad, to to negotiate down from absolute destruction does not seem like a winning strategy. Like that, there's no sort of larger idea about, you know, the kind of world we need to build, even any like rhetoric about how to respond to this crisis. You would think that Democrats would be calling for Medicare for all.
0: Right. <laughs> like, right. Like, I mean, it's like, at least if you can't negotiate it in this package, it's politically impossible. We are in an election year. It is an opportunity to energize people around what we could do in just a few months after an election right and you don't really see any of that rhetoric at least i personally don't see much rhetoric from democrats right now saying if we were in power here's what we would do here's what our stimulus would look like it would not only be something that would give jobs to people and it would not only put money immediately in the most vulnerable americans pockets but it would create an economy that's better equipped not only to respond to Viral crises and pandemics, but to the next clear global threat we face from climate change. I don't hear any of that. And I think the rhetoric is just important as the actual policy at this point because Republicans are super excited about Donald Trump right now and how he's handling coronavirus. You've written a few pieces on specific climate related policy proposals that you think would be great to see in an economic stimulus package for coronavirus. Can you talk about some of those?
1: So I wrote a piece about a federal job guarantee, which has been a historic demand of Democrats for decades. Full employment was in the Democratic Party platform until 1980, before it got taken out. And the idea is just to have the U.S. government be the employer of last resort. So to say that we know that not every person is going to have a job provided for them by the private sector. We know there's also different types of work, which is just not profitable, much of it, which can benefit the climate, right? It can give people alternative to working low paid work that's bound up in carbon intensive supply chains, not only to get the, you know, 3.3 million people who just saw unemployment insurance um, in the past week back to work, but also to be a sort of automatic, what's known as an automatic stabilizer against downturns and just just a program to have in place that can ramp up when unemployment rises and it can scale down when there are more jobs to be had.
0: Yeah. And I want to read like just a little part of your article about a federal jobs guarantee. You write, in cities, the formerly jobless could get to work making coastlines more resilient against future storms and floods. Tending community gardens in dense city areas could help alleviate the urban heat island effect. The federally hired workers in the South could plant mangrove trees along the water, protecting against erosion as they suck up carbon dioxide. As part of a broader push to plant those trillion trees, the Trump administration seems so keen on. I mean, there's more and more. You have more and more sentences of just immediate ways that we could put people to work that not only give them money now, but also help solve our next crisis. I don't understand why that's the first time I hear about something like this in your piece and not from I don't know Chuck Schumer
1: <laughs> you know one can hope you know it's a little bit of a shame that I think the way that green jobs get talked about are often of like strapping men putting solar panels on homes or like hoisting up wind turbines when there's all this work which is perfectly green is already low carbon that can be expanded and that the federal government through a program like a job guarantee can really support and really, you know, build out We could also see an approach to recovery that really builds out the type of work that we've seen is so important, that's so key to just keeping society functional. Who has been sort of on the front lines of this crisis? It's been nurses and healthcare workers who are undervalued in many ways and are doing work which is already low carbon. Why would a response to this crisis not look at this work which we've seen is so important? and look to build that out. Why aren't we getting millions more people involved in healthcare professions, not just to deal with something like this coronavirus crisis, but to deal with the fact that we have a crisis of care. We have baby boomers who are reaching their old age, are going to require more care. And and the fact that that work is undervalued, traditionally done by women, these are green jobs, right? These are jobs which we're going to need more of, which are not pouring carbon in the atmosphere and can be well-paid union work. So I think, you know, we can sort of expand the idea of what a green job is. And I think that can be really central to what this recovery looks like.
0: Yeah, and I remember, I'm trying to think which political person I first heard this from that nurses were green jobs because we're entering a climate crisis that will exacerbate health problems of of millions of people through the spread of viruses and diseases as one part, but also air pollution and just other health effects of climate change. And so nurses are green jobs. You know, you write that it kind of seems like thinking creatively about this problem during the coronavirus crisis during this such a dire time kind of seems like irresponsible, like we just want to get back to normal at this point, you know, let's just do what we need to do to get back to normal. I don't know, I kind of think it's irresponsible to think that we can go back to normal after this, that after something like this, we just go back to the way things were. Knowing what we know about this other global crisis and how it's going to exacerbate problems just like the one we're in right now. How do you not think creatively during this time? How do you not say, you know what, we're going to restart the economy, but we're going to make an economy that works better for crises like this? I just wish I saw more of that, I guess.
1: Yeah. And and the sad fact of it is that the right is thinking very creatively in this moment, right? We saw the EPA enforcement suspended uh, in in, in the last couple days. Yeah,
0: because the best way to protect public health is to suspend public health regulations.
1: Right, and the coal industry asking for relief, quote-unquote, to having to pay out for black lung, right?
0: And the plastics (laughs) industry being like, we should bring single-use plastic bags back because reusable bags are germy. Right. Using zero real science. I mean, that's creative. That's a creative way to achieve your chosen policy goal, the thing you've wanted for years, and using a crisis to get it. And yet Democrats or progressives or climate advocates are the ones who are using a crisis to their advantage because they want to save more lives than just the ones threatened by coronavirus.
1: Yeah, I think there's a discomfort about taking advantage of crisis on the sort of progressive end of the spectrum that just does not exist for the right.
0: Well, the right gets to accuse Democrats of trying to take advantage of a crisis while taking advantage of the crisis, I mean the fact that the fossil fuel industry gets all public health, environmental regulations suspended during coronavirus. I mean, f- first of all, I made a little joke on Twitter, but it's not that much of a joke. It's like, well, the EPA wasn't really enforcing pollution regulations anyway, <laughs> but now they just get to not do it, you know, flagrantly, and that's awesome, right? I want to briefly touch on the other creative idea that Democrats could have for a coronavirus relief package, potentially in the future, because you know, this last one, probably not the last one, is the nationalization of the fossil fuel industry. You wrote a piece, I'm just going to read a little bit from it, that said, nationalization has a long and proud tradition of navigating America through times of crisis from World War II to 9-11. No sector may be facing as profound a crisis right now as the oil and gas industry. With crashing oil prices, all manner of stimulus measures are on the table, and previously tight-fisted politicians now thinking more creatively, nationalizing the fossil fuel industry might just be one of the most sensible ideas on offer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, What is the case for nationalization, especially from the perspective of it, it having a long and proud tradition of navigating Americans through crisis?
1: Yeah, I think this is something that I've talked about for a while has been sort of floating around, but I think really specifically to this crisis is really an important option to have on the table. Oil prices just this morning crashed below $20 a gallon. We're seeing prices that are well below, you know, in some cases even half of what oil and gas companies need to break even. This is the biggest crisis to oil and gas industry has faced in a hundred years, some are saying. And this will hit U.S.-based shale producers, which is a large proportion of the drilling that we do in the United States, particularly hard. And that will likely be a depression in the oil and gas sector among these companies, which were never really built to last. And so what does that mean? Yes, many of these companies could go bankrupt and that will devastate whole communities, um, particularly if you think about places like the Permian Basin, places like Appalachia, which are already dealing with the end of the you know, very serious decline of one fossil fuel in, in the form of coal. And so we know, you know from past bankruptcies, particularly in the coal sector, that what the CEOs of these companies are likely to do is just walk away, right, to take as much money as they can out as quickly as possible and short workers in their health care to leave them with no pensions and really just, you know, toss out these communities when they're done with them. And that is bad, you know, not just for the workers in those industries, but also for the tax bases, which, you know, depend on them. And, you know, losing those opportunities is going to devastate tax bases, which bleeds up into health funding, bleeds up into public schools, has this real sort of ripple effect. and so why I argue for nationalizing the fossil fuel industry is not just uh, from the sort of climate perspective, but from an economic point of view, which is to give these communities a sort of path off of oil and gas that isn't sort of crashing out and leaving them to sort of bear the burden of that. To add to that, I mean, we already provide so much support to the fossil fuel industry, right? $26 billion a year between state and federal funding that is provided in the form of direct and indirect subsidies and yet
0: we don't own crap
1: right and that's just tax breaks that's just money that's going out the door to these companies that are killing us and can be retooled so it's not as if it's some big intervention in the economy which doesn't exist it's just really rethinking you know is this the kind of industry we need to be pouring billions of dollars worth of subsidies into every year or could that go somewhere else could that go to building the economy we need
0: well, and that's really the point, too, right? Is that, that this is an industry that is killing us. I mean, that's really the moral point that I don't hear at all, especially in coronavirus discussions. That yes, there's a virus that is killing us, and that is a global crisis. It is imminent, it is scary, it is awful. We were also being killed more slowly, but killed by fossil fuels. So this stimulus package is to boost the economy, create jobs, and prevent death. I just don't see how these things are not related.
1: Right. That's a better talking point than I've heard from most of the...
0: Thank you so much. I just uh, thought of it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's great.
0: (laughs) Do you think that there's any fault in the climate activist community for not sparking a greater sense of what's possible among politicians? Is there something that hasn't happened? Or has climate activists done enough here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like everyone, climate activists are sort of figuring out how to deal with this world, right? Everybody being at home is not necessarily conducive to big popular politics and, you know, mass protests that have been successful for groups like the Sunrise Movement. It's not a great time to hold to sit-in,
0: right? Um, it's a great time to be evil. I feel like if you're just, <laughs> and I feel like if you're like an empath, if you're somebody who really cares about other people, right now is a really hard time to do activism because you're just so sad because people are dying and people are suffering. And But if you're evil, you're like, yes, all the empaths are sad.
1: Right. Yeah. So go it, out
0: there and do my shit.
1: Yeah, it lends itself to sociopathy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> really. and, and, you know, to like, I think it's challenging to figure out how to do activism when you can't hold a protest. And, when, and people are sort of I think, figuring that out as they go along, but there's definitely not a great blueprint for it.
0: Yeah, again, it's time to think creatively, right? And fortunately, a lot of us have some time to do that.
1: Yeah, it's been really inspiring to watch people organize for rent strikes. I mean, in part, you know, out of necessity, a lot of people just don't have an income, can't pay their rent. And I think we've seen that this kind of organizing translate into real policy change in New York State. We have a moratorium on evictions, which has happened in other places. People are calling for a moratorium on rents. And I think this, you know, is certainly helpful to demanding very progressive things at just about every level of government. If, you know, there are ways to be organized, there are ways to sort of connect with people, even if, you know, we can't physically be in the same space.
0: Not to keep coming back to this point, but I think it really is becoming the theme That is solely based on our perspective and our imagination on this. If everyone just considers the climate crisis to be a necessity to solve with this, then it becomes one, just like our rent payments. And it's urgent for us to deal with it right now. I mean, we may not get a better chance than this, as ridiculous as that sounds, as ridiculous as it sounds to consider something as awful as the coronavirus an opportunity. It really is. And it shouldn't be an embarrassment to say that. It shouldn't be taboo to say that because Republicans are taking this as an opportunity too. It's an opportunity for anybody who wants it to be.
1: Yeah. And I I think we are also on that note seeing leadership from workers, right? Just today, workers at General Electric walked off the job because they want to be making ventilators instead of consumer electronics. And, you know, I think that type of thing is so important in this moment and, you know, is such a good roadmap for what a mobilization for the climate crisis can really look like. It's a challenge, certainly. I think it's a communication challenge to make climate feel as visceral and feel as real to people as this crisis feels. But it absolutely is. And I think it certainly is for people who face the loss of their homes from flooding, who are farmers living with drought who, you know, are already experiencing all manner of climate impacts, which, you know, we could see in the next couple of months sort of crash into this crisis in ways that could be quite horrifying. If we get a hurricane in the next couple of months and people are on lockdown, what happens then? These crises aren't sort of neatly siloed, I think, in the ways that we're encouraged to think of them as being separate.
0: I hope that that's one of the things that does not go back to normal after this, is that I hope that people come out of it with a more renewed and more urgent sense of civic responsibility, not only individually, but to to change systems so that we're not put in a situation like this again. And I have hope that it'll happen, but we'll see. There is one thing I think that you could be really helpful for people with here because so many people have exhausted all of their Netflix options. And you wrote a piece about how there's another show that you think is really great that people might wanna watch that might not only be fun, but give them some inspiration, some Green New Deal style stuff. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, so I wrote a piece about the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, which is a YouTube channel from Bon Appetit magazine, which is just lovely. One of the shows that I write about is called Gourmet Makes, where a professional pastry chef recreates sort of childhood snacks, Pop-Tarts, Hot Pockets, Pokey, Starbursts, Skittles. What I write about in the piece, and which I think is especially relevant now as everybody's at home, people aren't commuting in uh, or developing a sort of different relationship to work, is that you just get to watch people have a good time for 30 minutes and do something that is not productive, right? Making gourmet Pop-Tarts is not adding to GDP. It is not traditionally productive of, in, in any sense of the word, but people just have the time to do it, right? And I think that's the sort of beauty of what of the world of Green New Deal can build is that we all have the time if we so choose to make gourmet milky ways in our kitchens and you know get help from the people around us relevant to the green new deal i think we have to sort of rethink our relationship to food certainly to many different types of supply chains and and i think the the vision that the bon appetit test kitchen presents of food ways is to really you know refocus what's important you know we can spend four hours making something that's just for us to enjoy with friends you know hopefully once this period of social distancing is over it's really lovely and uh so wholesome
0: hey man if we can all come out of this with not only a renewed sense of the type of society we want to create and a shared ability to create delightful pastries i think we'll all be in a pretty good place oh yeah Thanks for checking out the Heated podcast. We're producing this in collaboration with Drilled. And thank you to Amy Westervelt for her partnership. Speaking of partners, Kate keeps good company. The folks at The New Republic are the best, and they also have a new podcast. Check out The Politics of Everything. It's culture, media, and politics with Alex Perrine and Laura Marsh. In the most recent episode, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer Lori Garrett talks about the making of a pandemic how years of budget cuts, privatization, pharmaceutical consolidation got us here. The politics of everything, wherever you get your podcasts. Really important though, and I need you to listen to this next part, we're also producing this podcast with you. Heated is a completely independent production. There's no corporation or foundation paying for any of this. It's just us. And by that, I mean all of you listening and us on the other side of the microphone. The Heated Newsletter is a one-woman operation, but the podcast is produced by a team of four. And this episode makes clear, if we want to curb and contain the smash and grab in Washington, it's on us. There is no way in hell that Beltway Journalism is gonna get anything done. So we're gonna have to make some noise. That's why we're asking you to help make Heated possible. Your financial support is vital. 100% 100% of what you give goes to production costs and supporting the four-person team who's producing this series. Anything would be appreciated. But people have been saying that $30 or $60 works for them. That breaks down to 5 or $10 bucks per podcast. Your individual action right now to help cover these costs will make a difference. Please go to GoFundMe and search Heated Podcast. 30 or 60 bucks, or whatever works for you would be amazing and deeply appreciated at GoFundMe. Search Heated Podcast. This podcast is produced by Heated, with support from Limina House. Our production team is my co-executive producer, Michael Elsesser. Paul Chufo is our engineer and producer, and Jessica France runs our operations. I'm Emily Adkin, your host and the founder of Heated, a newsletter for people pissed off about the climate crisis. Check us out at Heated.world. We made everything we've done available for free during the COVID crisis. Thanks for being here. See you next time.